Wow, it's good to gather together, God. So good to see your lovely, wonderful, smiling faces in church this morning. You happy to be here? Excellent. Good, good. I'm going to jump right into uh, scripture from the book of Titus. Um, we're going to have the scriptures come up so you can have a look, but you can follow along in your, your phones, your tablets these days, isn't it? But if you've got your Bible, then you can also open the old-fashioned way and have a look on paper. You can do that as well. But Titus, um, uh, the title of this morning is uh, After We Believe. And I want to jump straight in there. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. How many know the grace of God is, is here and it's, and it's right now? I really believe that. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety, worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. While we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he it is who gave us himself, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. thought that's come to me this morning is what happens after we believe? What happens after we believe? What kind of life are we called to live? And how do we live that life? That How do we live up to those expectations that we read so often in the Scriptures? And I see the writing here in the New Testament and all through the New Testament speaks of a self-controlled life. But it's also a life that's lived in the hope of the glory of God that's revealed at Christ's appearance and here and now and the eschatological, if I can say that right, teaching, eschatological, something like that. Basically that means teaching about death, resurrection, the judgment and the end time. And we see these two go together so much in there is hope in the end that God's going to sort it all out, that his kingdom will finally come and that we will be in that final redemption at the end of the age. Um, and the reason we live the way we do is because we're looking to that end of the age. The reason we live a Christ-like life following Jesus in the present age is because we're waiting for that age to come and the manifestation of his glory when God will finally be revealed and we will be finally revealed of who we really are. So this morning, my, my topic is, is what happens after we believe, or what are we here for? It comes to me, if the salvation and the grace of God was purely so that we would have a ticket to heaven, then why are we still here? Why are we not already there enjoying heaven? And I suggest it's because we're meant to live here on earth as representatives of Christ, and to become the genuine human beings reflecting, in, reflecting the God whose image we were made, and that we do this with, with worship on one hand, and mission in its full and large sense of mission on the other. And what we do is defined not least by following Christ. So the question 
how do we live this life in the here and now? And how do we work out that salvation that we already have? And what happens after we believe? Because when we believe, we put our faith in Christ. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, a character transformation begins. Transformation of the character that we have or that Christian character that we're developing. I spoke about that a few weeks ago. Is what the philosophers would call virtue. And if you've studied any kind of ancient philosophy or any kind of ethics, you'll, you'll know that Aristotle, about 400 years before Christ, proposed that virtue was a way to live and develop a character that someone could look up to and someone that has a virtuous character does the right thing, makes the right choices, which he proposed was, alterna- was an alternative to the kind of blind obedience to following the rules or some kind of authentic spontaneity which, you know, we do what feels right to you kind of attitude or I'll make up my mind in the moment what I'll do and that's how I'll live my life or live your life by kind of trying to predict the outcome of anything that you do. The sort of consequential idea, what is the projected and perceived outcome of I will act accordingly. But unlike Aristotle, who proposed his cardinal virtues, Christian character development and the transformation of us as these new believers is is all about the training of God's grace, which is where our scripture comes in here. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, and it's the same grace that is training us, is teaching us, is helping us develop that character. And Christian virtues included much more than just the Aristotelian virtues. Things like chastity, things like charity, things like humility, things like selfless living is something that Aristotle would have never, ever come up with. But these virtues, Christian virtues, once developed, it builds us as people. And then, of course, these virtuous Christian people then do indeed follow the rules or keep the rules, but not out of some some sense of externally imposed duty, but out of the character that's been developed and formed within us. And then, of course, it does mean that we follow our hearts. It does mean that we live authentically. But what has happened inside is a transformation, and that character then becomes fully operative. And then as Christian Uh, virtuous Christian characters then automatically we kind of know the right thing to do and our scripture this morning talks about that training that the grace of God gives us that means that we renounce impiety we renounce the worldly passions and this is part of the character forming process that God is taking us through and once that character transformation is is fully formed which can be hard work that will bear fruit in our spontaneous decisions and our actions that reflect on what has already happened within and of course that has impact to travel around us and the world with which we live in and there's a challenge to us as a church to how do we grow and develop and disciple people 
How do we bring people through that process of character transformation? How do we deal with people whose character isn't fully transformed in the wisdom and service and knowledge of God? And how do we deal with the worldly things that surround us, the greed, the the passions and the the desire for power and prominence, the desire for uh, things of this world that we think that will make us happy but in the end leaving us empty? But the heart of it, this is something that is supposed to happen after you believe. That the thing called virtue in a, in a new and a reborn Christian sense that truly transforms us as characters, as people, as genuine human beings that are called to follow God and work out what it means to be these new creations, what it means to be Christ. I've got three quick points from my scripture this morning. The first is uh, the grace of God, the salvation that we have, the, the fact that we are newborn, new creations, is all by the grace of God. When we read scriptures, and I don't know, growing up as a teenager in church, I'd read these scriptures about how you have to be holy and how you have to be righteous. And I always looked at that as a sense of condemnation upon myself. I always looked at there's these things that we have to do in order to behave and to be like Christ. And I'd often read it like it was effort, like it was self-effort or it was works. And you can get into a mentality of that your salvation is dependent on your works. But of course, this isn't a New Testament idea. The gift of salvation, as Paul often called it, you read Romans 5, and he talks about the gift of salvation. And Paul, time, time and again, always goes back to what was it like in the beginning? What did God create us for? He made us in his image and duties to uh, rule and reign as kings and priests in his earth and to be and to look after his creation. And Paul often goes back to that beginning and he goes back to how us as human beings, we kind of messed up. And he says, through one human's trespass, sin came into the world and many died. And how much more, he says, will this gift of grace that comes through the, through the one Jesus Christ bring us into a place of salvation and redeem us from the, the mistakes and the, the, the life of sin that, that was bound to us. And of course, sin is linked with death. And Paul describes this work as a work of God's Spirit, that the gift of God's grace was revealed through Jesus Christ. And the gift, he says, is not like the effect of the one human sin. And he continues to say that because judgment was brought in because of that one trespass, then condemnation came in. But the gift of God in Jesus Christ, through one man's trespass, death entered and death ruled and reigned. And then he says in verse 17, this is Romans 5, he says, How much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You know, some of this is, in, it is really important that we understand the role that Jesus Christ did. He came to transform everything. He came to turn the world right side up. He came to undo all the things that our sin and our trespasses that brought us into a place of death and where we weren't ruling and reigning and bring us into a place of life and life forevermore. Um, my second point 
is that we do have this new life, and it is a whole new life. God has, right back to creation, made us as these genuine human beings that were, were created for ruler, for to represent him. Made in his image and likeness, he made us, it said. And, and we have this new life, and it's for us to be these genuine human beings made in his image, both for his and our glorification. So the question is, we have a new life. Then what does this new life look like after we believe? How do we as Christians perceive ourselves? Like me as a a young teenager looking at scripture, do I always perceive myself as someone that always fails, someone that's always weak, someone that's always struggling, someone whose life doesn't meet up to the expectations that God has for us? When he says things like, be holy as I am holy. And I think... Yeah, not going to happen. But how do we perceive ourselves and how should we order our lives? Both as individuals, how should we focus our lives? As a church, how, do we, how should we influence the world around us? How do we find our place? How do we engage with each other in a social context, both inside our community and outside our community? How and when should we take a stand? How should we get involved in politics? How should we get involved in uh, the hot topics that we're facing today? What does our faith and what does our new life mean? What does it mean to be these genuine human beings as God fully intended and as part of of his kingdom. Paul would say and argue that it begins with our new identity. And he says when you become a new creation, it's not that you're you're Jewish, it's not that you're Greek, it's not that you're a slave, it's not that you're free, it's not that you're male and female, it's not those categories anymore. You're a new creation. You're finally who God intended you to be. And then we have to kind of work out what it means to be people as God intended, part of God's kingdom. And he would say this begins with our... And baptism is not just a a way of becoming a Christian or uh, identifying yourself as a Christ follower. It's, It's a lot more than that. There's something that changes and transforms in your life when you're baptized into Christ You are a new creation. You're part of God's people. You're more than just part of the church, as in somewhere you attend on a Sunday morning. This is a total transformation of your life. It's a new identity. There are cultures, even today, where getting baptized means that you leave behind your your family, your job, your national identity. There's places in the world that if you worked in the government, and then you became a Christian, they'd say, that's it. You cannot work for the government anymore. You know, there was was in those days, plus there is today in some places, where becoming a baptized Christian meant a complete change of life. And baptism and that kind of identity in being the people of God is, is, is something that's really important. And I think it, a little bit of history there. It has its roots um, in the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith, they would um, 
circumcise. And it was just the males at that, that time, obviously. Um, but they would circumcise the child on the eighth day, and it was part of that naming ceremony. And I guess some of those early Christians in the first centuries brought in the infant baptism to kind of replace that, keep the naming part, but then sort of infant baptism. But And, and more commonly today, a Christian's new identity as one who is in Christ. Galatians speaks of this in Galatians 3. It says they have been baptized into Christ and they've been made a child of God along with their fellow believers. And in the New Testament, this was very common. The idea that you'd be baptized in water and in the Spirit meant that you are God. You've almost been transformed from your own family and you've been brought into a new family and those Christians really saw their gatherings as not as a attendance to a service but as something new that they were part of and that of course meant that they were not doing the the sacrifices that maybe the, the Romans would do. They were not doing the worshipping of the idols that others would do. And of course, if that meant they were needed to trade in the marketplace and they were not willing to offer the sacrifice to the uh, the gods of the marketplace, if you like, then they weren't welcome. So how did they trade? How did they do this? And they built up these communities and they looked after the sick, the poor, the, the orphans, the widows, and they took these people on as their own family. And the people in the ancient world didn't look after anyone that wasn't in their family. But these Christians were somehow different. And maybe that's one reason why the church really grew. As children of God. They saw themselves as these new humanity, and which probably sounded very arrogant and made them quite hated in the world. What makes you so special kind of attitude? And they got a lot of persecution for that. But this new humanity, the image bearers of God who are made for his glory. In Romans 8, Paul says, it is the very spirit, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if we're children then we're heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ sounds quite arrogant (laughs) sounds quite arrogant doesn't it but he means this stuff and he's then he goes on to say if we suffer with him we'll be also glorified with him you know how your identity as a child of God is something new is something different And it's this spiritual witness within us that we know that we are part of God's family. But the the beauty of this, it was never an exclusive club. It was never meant to, uh, it was always meant to include others. That's why I said the two things with worship, you know, the gathering together and the praising God and mission come together as um, as one objective. But this was the starting point, the new life. And rather than just gathering together, someone at the front gives out all the rules and then everyone goes away and if they obey the rules, then they're okay. And if they don't, um, you know, then there's problems. No, there was this kind of idea of discipleship. And discipleship is more about us being given an example to follow. And Jesus does this. And Jesus didn't just 
provide everyone with the answers. Go A, B, C, here's the doctrine, here's the list of do's and don'ts, here's the list of things you must believe and not believe. Jesus actually invited people to follow him. Well, as it happens, is an absolutely moral and serious proposition. Jesus made disciples. Not people who would just know the right answers, but people whose sense of judgment, people whose sense of character, by following Jesus, were completely transformed. Thomas Aquinas was a, uh, a teacher in the first few centuries. And he said that because we're made in the image of God, it implies that we are an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. And where, the re- where reason itself flourishes most fully is in the contemplation and the display of intellectual virtue. The ultimate human goal is realized, and there's a further goal towards uh, which the human being is also being directed, this blessed grace and friendship with God. In other words, humans were not only meant to contemplate and embody what is good, we were joy and love God, who's the source of all goodness. We are meant to uh, commune with God in a way that transcends our lives and to that of our neighbours. In other words, we're made children of God not just so we can live good lives, not so that we can just worship God, but that we can be completely transformed and we can transform a world around us. And that friendship with God, that enjoyment of God, is not something that we can attain on our own without his grace. The gift of grace from a loving God who created us for this purpose to display his goodness. That's why we connect with God. That's why we uh, worship him. It's that we can then bring a transformation to the world around us. My final point is this idea of final redemption. And the point of this passage, it talks about the manifestation of the glory of God or the revealing of Christ at the end of the age. To our thinking of how we as new creations and people of God act in the here and now. Indeed, the world around us can see that we're different. The world around us can see that we are new creations in light of our end time hope. The Apostle Paul, when he faced even the toughest situations, he always looked to, how do I respond in this situation when I'm suffering? I always compare it to the glory that awaits in the final age. And when he looked at that, he was like, okay, I can go through this because it's not, it's not anything compared to the glory that awaits us. And it's important also to note that when we talk about the final age of the redemption of humanity, Paul always includes creation in that. So when we're thinking, you know, we ought to look after God's creation, like we were given charge of right then, we look after the creation because it's not just us that are redeemed, but creation itself is redeemed as well. So Paul writes, uh, this is Romans 8 as well, he says, how the whole of creation is waiting for the, sub, for the children of God to be revealed. And even though creation and human beings messed up right in the beginning, and one of the things that happened or the consequences of that was fruitlessness, 
But God wants us to be fruitful and he wants his creation to be fruitful. And even though creation, he goes on, you have to read this, is subject to death and decay, just like human beings, so is creation subject to death and decay. This will be restored. The freedom that Christ has given us, that he set us free for, is that we can be his children and that we can be who we're called to be in, in us and creation, the whole redemption plan of God. 8.22 says, We know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, but not only the creation has, but we have too. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we are saved. What he's saying there is that we have a first taste, a first glimpse of what it means to be redeemed in the end and it says creation there and us have this like a seed within us like a first fruit of the spirit we've got a a glimpse of what the end will look like and how we will be resurrected and what our new life will be like so you kind of think we're we're kind of in practice we're living the way we live now because in the end it will be fully redeemed And he talks about hope there. And hope um, is not something wishy-washy, but it's that that security. All of humanity, all of creation will finally be restored. But in the meantime, we live in the light of that as virtuous beings endowed with his grace. So to conclude, the life that Jesus has called us to live as his followers, followers is that kingdom life. Or it's that kingdom in advance life, if you like. It's a life which means that we are God's, or we are now kingdom agents. And we live through kingdom means. So we want to live in God's kingdom in its full and final sense. We actually live or begin to live that way. And as we do, God comes into our lives. And he begins to change and transform us. You know, in the end, both Peter and in Revelation, they talk about how the people of God, just like the ancient call of the Israelites, were meant to be kings and priests. Going back to creation, where God said, I'll make you in my image as image bearer and to rule. I'll get into that maybe another time. But now we have that same calling to live almost in practice of the new kingdom and the eventual position where the glory and final redemption will come. Therefore, the habits and the practices that we have as Christians or Christ followers, we're called to demonstrate in the here and now what we will eventually be putting into practice when God's kingdom is fully in operation. But Christ... He came, didn't he? He turned the world right side up, cleansing them, bringing them into a place of his kingdom. He said, come follow me, giving us that example that we should, as God's people, begin to demonstrate what Christ did through his cross, through his resurrection, and then what he did through his Holy Spirit, through our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and how we are these new 
beings, these new creations begun in our baptism. It begins with God washing us and renewing our hearts and the renewal of his covenant. That's why to it, when he talked at Passover, you know, and he broke the bread and he took the wine. And it was that Passover was there representing their rescue out of slavery, their rescue um, that Jesus' death and resurrection did. And he renewed his covenant right there and then. And in Pentecost, we see the spiritual power enabling these, these first disciples to go out and to begin to preach and teach what Christ had taught them and preached them to do and to be the and begin to be the people that God had called them to be. That heart was transformed. It's renewed. That's why baptism is important. That's why the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is important because these are the beginnings of our renewal and our restoration when we, while we eagerly await for the end time. But what happens after we believe? That was my point, wasn't it? What happens after we believe is that we are now defined as genuine human beings. And that helps us understand what we're here for. Reflect the image of God, created in his image and likeness to demonstrate who God is. And Christ did this in the most full and wonderful way as he restored people, as he healed people, as he reached out to those that society would would shun or put aside. You know, and he began to work on things like justice. He began to work on things like love. And how you begin to operate your life is we look to Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And then we begin to uh, understand his word for us. We begin to understand what our new identity in Christ is. We reflect on God in whose image we are created. And we do this, don't we, with our worship on one hand and our mission. In its full and large sense, we mean mission um, on the other hand. And these two things go together when we truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Aristotle, people of virtuous characters that others could look to, to could identify with and say, you know, that's the direction and goal of my life. That's the kind of character that I want to be. And we do that as Christians when we orientate our life towards Jesus. The scripture says you look to Jesus and you leave behind your old life. You look to him. And you say, Jesus, be my example. A lot of people today are not knowing what way to look to, not knowing any direction or purpose in life. They're not knowing where their life is heading. But Jesus says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. And I say, that is the beginning. And that's the starting point. And as you do, his spirit, his grace will become so powerful in you. And we'll come to a place and a position, you know, and as we develop into those human beings that we were originally created for. My time is up. I'll close where I started in Titus 2. It has appeared. Do you believe that? He has brought salvation to all. That same grace is training us to renounce our impiety or ungodliness and our worldly passions. And in the present age to live as self-controlled, upright and godly while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I tell you this, this is rich scripture, isn't it? Jesus Christ, he, it is 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds or passionate. God wants us to be passionate about following him. And sometimes the character development, that's hard work. That's hard work. But isn't God's grace patient with us? Isn't God helping us, changing us, transforming us by his Holy Spirit? I pray that right now. By your Holy Spirit, bring us into a place where we understand fully your grace for us, fully your love for us, that you are indeed transforming us into those new creations, calling us to represent you as your image bearers, calling us to rule and reign as kings and priests in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you've given us, the hope of that final restoration of creation and us as human beings. And Lord, let us order our lives and direct our life towards you as you are the author and finisher of our faith. Let us run the race that you've called us to leave, looking towards you, leaving behind our old life, bringing us into a a greater knowledge and a depth and understanding of your grace, your loving kindness, your compassion, your mercy, your forgiveness. Help us to live the lives that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.